Today is law school day. This is a law school seminar. You're the students, I'm the professor, and I'm gonna use hypotheticals, what law students call hypos, two hypos. Number one, what if the president nominates a deeply, deeply religious person to the court and some of the senators believe that her religious views might influence her judicial views? How is it proper to ask questions about religion in the confirmation process? A very difficult and delicate question. Hypothetical two, what if a justice, instead of dying, goes into a coma? What if Justice Ginsburg had become comatose and couldn't serve on the Supreme Court and remained in a coma through the entire period of the election and beyond when the new president, if there is a new president, is inaugurated? What happens then? Those are the two hypotheticals we'll be discussing this morning on The Dirt Show. Today on The Dirt Show, I'm going to play law professor. We're going to talk about two hypothetical situations, both of which may actually occur. Number one, what if the president nominates somebody who is religious and has a religion that may impact their decisions on the Supreme Court? Very delicate, very difficult issue. The second hypothetical is, What would happen if a justice, rather than dying as tragically Ruth Bader Ginsburg did, went into a coma for a long period of time, was not able to resign, and was unable to fulfill her duties as a justice, but didn't commit an impeachable offense? In law school, we call these hypos, hypotheticals, and I'm going to play law professor today and go over both of those issues. Let's begin with the one that's quite likely to occur. The president will soon announce his nomination for the United States Supreme Court. The leading candidate, according to news reports, is a current judge, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, who currently sits on the United States Court of Appeals. Uh, When she came up for confirmation last time as a circuit judge, Senator Feinstein said something that caused an enormous amount of controversy. She said, the dogma lives loudly in you, referring to her deep Catholic faith. That created tremendous and understandable controversy. T-shirts were made, the dogma lives loudly. People were proud of the fact that she was a deeply religious Catholic. On the other hand, Judge Senator Feinstein was concerned that perhaps it might influence her decisions, particularly on a woman's right to choose. We know the Catholic Church is very much opposed to abortion as a matter of theology. But I think Senator Feinstein mishandled the question, mishandled the problem. Let's be clear about one fact. The United States Constitution absolutely prohibits any religious test from ever be imposed from ever being imposed for any office under the United States the United States Constitution was the first document in the history of humankind to impose such a prohibition no religious test shall ever be imposed on anyone holding office under the United States so you can't be disqualified if you're a catholic a jew a protestant an atheist those are all religious tests 
On the other hand, it's perfectly appropriate to ask a nominee on the Supreme Court, would your religion prohibit you from allowing a woman to get an abortion if the Constitution provided such a right? Would you engage essentially in an act of religious civil disobedience, refuse to obey the law uh, on the basis of your religion? A perfectly appropriate question. But asking about one's religion as such is not an appropriate question. So, for example, it would not be proper to ask Judge Barrett why she did not herself have an abortion when, tragically, prenatal testing determined that her pregnancy was with a child who would have Down syndrome. She birthed the child as bringing up the child with Down syndrome. She has a perfect right to do that, and she can't be discriminated against on the basis of personal choices or choices of which church to go to or how to pray or which God to believe in. None of those issues are in any way relevant or appropriate. But on the other hand, she could be asked the following question. If you believe the Constitution provides for a woman's right to choose, could you enforce that right in the face of your church's prohibition of abortion? Now, the issue may not come up for Judge Barrett because she doesn't believe the Constitution in any way authorizes a woman to have an abortion. She doesn't think it's in the Constitution, and obviously there are other judges and justices who share her view. That is a constitutional view. That's a, a view based on jurisprudence. It's not a religious view. Nor should we psychoanalyze a justice to ask the question, is your constitutional view in any way derived from your religious view? That's not an appropriate a question to ask. Let, let me give you an example from history. One of the worst decisions ever rendered by the United States Supreme Court was Buck versus Bell. You may have heard of it. Uh, Buck versus Bell involved a state law that authorized the sterilization of a person, woman, uh, who was thought to have been mentally defective, to use the language of that age. And the Supreme Court upheld that law. Uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, one of the greatest justices in American history, famously, I would say infamously, wrote a decision in which he said, three generations of imbeciles are enough, referring to the fact that this woman had a grandmother, a mother, and herself who allegedly were imbeciles. Justice Holmes was totally wrong on the facts. The later research proved that none of that was true. Indeed, even the woman who was sterilized was not, quote, mentally defective. She was just poor and uneducated. In any event, that decision was an 8-to-1 decision. The great Justice Brandeis went along with it, uh, to his uh, shame. The only dissenter was the only Catholic judge on the Supreme Court, um, Judge Butler. And uh, he didn't write a dissenting opinion. He just said, I dissent. And there's been much speculation throughout history about whether his dissent was based on his Catholic views. The Catholic Church rightfully prohibited sterilization and eugenics. Buck versus Bell was ultimately cited, a United States Supreme Court case cited by Nazis who were trying to justify uh, 
sterilization and, and, and eugenics in general during the Nuremberg uh, uh, trials. So it's one of the most disgraceful cases in American history, and the only dissenter was a religious uh, Catholic. Uh, it's so hard to separate out religion from constitutional views. I'm sure if Judge Butler were asked, he would say, those are my constitutional views. Were they influenced by my religion? Who ever knows what influences you? We're all products of our upbringing and our background, which is why diversity on the high court is a good thing. It's so interesting, when I was growing up, there used to be, quote, a Jewish seat on the Supreme Court. There would be one Jew on the Supreme Court. It was Brandeis for a while. It was Justice Frankfurter for a while. I then clerked for the person who took over Frankfurter's Jewish seat, uh, Arthur Goldberg, and then Abe Fortas was nominated to replace Arthur Goldberg. Um, so there was one Jewish seat. And when Brandeis was nominated, one of the greatest justices in history, many prominent Americans, uh, presidents of the bar, opposed his nomination solely on the ground that he was Jewish and that this is a Protestant country and we shouldn't have a Jew on the Supreme Court. Oh, maybe one Catholic, perhaps, but no Jews. He got the confirmation in a divided vote and served with great distinction for many, many years. But far be it from any senator today to impose a religious test. It just should never be done under any circumstances. Today's Supreme Court is very different from the Supreme Court I grew up with. Uh, the Supreme Court throughout history has been, in many generations, exclusively Protestant or Protestant with one Catholic. Uh, until very recently, there were no Protestants on the current uh, Supreme Court. Until Justice Scalia's death, the Supreme Court had um, six uh, justices of the Catholic background and three justices of Jewish background. No Protestants. Uh, Justice Gorsuch, uh, who replaced um, uh, Justice Scalia, is a Protestant. So the current makeup of the Supreme Court is um, uh, five uh, people of Catholic faith, justices of Catholic faith, uh, one justice of Protestant faith, and two justices of, of Jewish faith. Um, if Judge Barrett were to be nominated, it would be six Catholics, two Jews, and one Protestant. But that shouldn't matter. What should matter is the quality of the justices. What should matter is their jurisprudential views. What should matter is what they decide and how they decide uh, cases, whether they follow the Constitution or whether they try to make up what they believe is best for the country, which is primarily a legislative function. These are the questions that should be asked of Judge Barrett if she is nominated, not about her own personal religious faith or her own church attendance. So we will wait and see because the nomination will be coming soon. Um, the two women who are on the top of the list are both observant Catholics, uh, one from Florida, one from Indiana. So it's likely that that issue will come up. But I hope, I hope that Senator Feinstein, who I admire, will become more nuanced and sophisticated in her questioning and not just make allegations about dogma living loudly. Uh, that just sounds like it crosses the line into a religious test. So that's my law school hypothetical number one. What if Judge Barrett gets nominated and what if questions are put to her about her religion and what if questions are put to her about her jurisprudence and whether she can 
employ her jurisprudence without regard to her religion. Stay tuned. We'll focus on that uh, very carefully if and when this nomination occurs and when the confirmation proceedings go forward. So I will keep a very careful eye on that, and you can count on me to report and analyze the issues uh, without regard to political bias or partisan weight. So stay tuned, come back, and, and listen to The Der Show once the nomination occurs and once the confirmation uh, proceeds. So now to my second hypothetical. This did not happen, but it could happen in the future. With all due respect to um, Justice Ginsburg, who is lying in repose today, I want to pose a hypothetical about what might have been. What if Justice Ginsburg hadn't died, but had fallen into a deep coma um, and could not serve on the Supreme Court, obviously, while she was comatose? And let's assume that the doctors made it clear the coma would last at least through the election and the inauguration of the president through, through January. Uh, what would happen? Would a president be allowed to fill that non-vacant seat, a seat being held by a woman who's in a coma, from which conceivably she could recover? Uh, let's assume first that she could not recover, that the doctors diagnosed it as a terminal coma. She'll never be able to uh, serve on the Supreme Court again, but she couldn't resign. She doesn't have the capacity to resign. She can't be impeached because impeachment requires uh, treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, and being in a coma doesn't fill any of those criteria. Uh, we don't have a 25th Amendment for justices. Remember, the 25th Amendment provides for a process by which an incapacitated president, a president who had a stroke or fell into a coma, who got sick the way um, uh, Woodrow Wilson got sick toward the end of his term, or if Ronald Reagan had been wounded more seriously, we have a constitutional amendment that deals with a secession plan in the event of the incapacity of a president. The president is unique. He's singular. He can't be. The country can't operate without him. Justices aren't unique. There are nine of them. Uh, and we have no constitutional amendment. What would actually happen? Would uh, the president say, look, this seat is vacant functionally. I'm going to fill it. And would he nominate? A candidate, and would the Senate then confirm? And what if hypothetically the comatose justice were to recover? Could she come back and claim her seat? These are all hypothetical situations, but they could occur. We now have several justices in their 70s, one in his 80s. Um, people subjected are subjected to strokes, heart attacks, other disabling illnesses um, in their 70s and 80s. And so we should be preparing for that hypothetical now. We should have perhaps a constitutional amendment. And I think we could get it enacted because nobody knows who's going to have the stroke, whether it's a Republican justice or a Democrat justice. So we can apply a fair process for determining how a judge should be judged incapacitated and functionally no longer serving on the Supreme Court. We have no such process now. There are regulations, there are bar association rules, there are judicial conference rules, there have been attempts to legislate, but the Constitution is clear. It says that a justice shall serve during good behavior. What does good behavior mean? You have to behave to have good behavior. The Constitution doesn't say shall be removed for bad behavior. If it said bad behavior, obviously a comatose justice couldn't be removed. 
But good behavior may give a justification for removing a justice who is engaged in no behavior because she or he is in a coma. That might be a stretch. Who would make that decision? We need a process, and we need it now. We need it in advance before any justice has a stroke. We've had judges and justices over time who have been incapacitated. There was a judge back almost 200 years ago who was diagnosed as permanent lunacy, permanent lunacy, incurable lunacy. And he went on to continue to serve on the Supreme Court for a number of years. We've had other judges and justices who have been senile, who've had Alzheimer's. Um, Usually pressure is put on them by their colleagues to retire, to resign. Most of them do, but you're in a coma. You can't resign. So we have to deal with that issue. Uh, The life of the law, as Olive Wendell Holmes once said, is not logic, it's experience. And experience reflects itself in precedence. And as a law school professor for 50 years, I always try to anticipate what might happen in the future. I didn't teach my students necessarily what the law was back 100 years ago or what the law is today. I try to teach my students what the law will be when they're practicing five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years, 30 years. And the hypothetical method, the what-if method, is the best way of dealing with future contingencies. So today we've dealt with future contingencies. What happens if a deeply religious person is nominated to the Supreme Court and her religious views are thought by some perhaps to influence her judicial views? How should that be dealt with in the confirmation process? Hypothetical number one. Hypothetical number two. What do we do if a justice becomes disabled as the result of a coma. I think we have to deal with that problem now. On The Der Show, we'll always deal with current problems and future problems. And as I promised you in the beginning of this show, you'll never be bored. Now it's time for you to question me. The first question comes from Ed in California. Mr. Dershowitz, thank you so much. This is Ed Monson calling from Fresno, California. I'm really enjoying The Der Show. Thanks. In fact, I've always felt that you were your analysis and your, um, the way you interpret things is completely down the middle. I used to listen to you on a radio show here whew, over 20 years ago. But even though, you, you know, even though you obviously belong to one party, you always separate that. And that's what I wish for the entire country. I wish we could do that top to bottom. My question for you is, watching the circus on Showtime this morning, the latest episode was discussing – Uh, the presidential uh, election in terms of COVID-19, the thought occurred to me that the real fight right now, the real disagreement is between do we want one giant federal government to handle everything or do we want the states? I mean, that's putting it in, you know, the context of uh, what you talk about. But anyway, if we, it seems like the, the virus that came to us from China is taking our strength and making it our weakness, which is the states really have a right to say what goes mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. And we can't let the federal government tell everybody what to do. So that seems to be the fight to me. What do you think? Let me know. I really would love to hear your opinion. I'm really enjoying the podcast. Thank you very much. 
Well, thank you so much for your comments. I think the reason I go down the middle and I'm objective is because for 50 years I taught at Harvard, and I strongly believe that it was not my role to teach students what to think, but teach them how to think. And students didn't know whether I was a Democrat or a Republican, didn't know whether I was a liberal or a conservative. In class, I was a facilitator of conversation, and I tried very hard to remain neutral. The question you ask about uh, federal versus state is a question, of course, that's divided this country from the very beginning. Uh, Jefferson very strongly believed in states' rights and state power. He believed that the United States government was a collection of states, and every state was sovereign. Once he became president, he had somewhat different views, and he bought Louisiana uh, for the federal government and did other things of that kind. But the theoretical debate was between the Hamiltonians, called the Federalists, and the Jeffersonians, called Democrat-Republicans. We continued to have that fight. The Civil War was over that fight. Um, in the Civil War, Calhoun and other people from the South said states' rights, state sovereignty, uh, which meant they were entitled to have slaves, which doesn't follow. It was a matter of, of, of even logic, just because you're a state and you're independent doesn't mean you can do something as immoral and horrible as enslaving uh, human beings. But that's the way the, the fight was fought. And, of course, the answer to your question is it depends. It depends what the issue is. On some issues, like fighting wars, we don't do it state by state. We have to have a strong federal government. It's in the Constitution. On other issues, such as education in the schools uh, and police, uh, those are uniquely state issues, and states are in a better position to make decisions that are uh, very much subject to local and regional considerations. Now, where I disagree with you is on the pandemic. The pandemic doesn't understand state borders. Um, you can't prevent people from crossing over from one state to another, so the pandemic spreads. It doesn't recognize national borders. We know that. And so I do think the federal government has an important role to play when it comes to issues such as school opening and business opening. Obviously, the federal government, state government, municipal governments all have to try to work together, and some deference should be paid to local considerations. The uh, problem, problem is that sometimes when you had a low rate of the virus, they opened too quickly and then the rates went up, and it spreads all over the country. So a balance has to be struck, and the Constitution tries hard to strike that balance. But in the end, one of the most important provisions of the Constitution is what's called the Supremacy Clause, and that is federal law ultimately is supreme. That's the difference between the United States Constitution and the Articles of Confederacy, which ruled our country for the first years after we were established and after we won the Revolution. But it became clear that the Articles of Confederacy didn't deal with an emerging nation. And so we adopted our Constitution, which gives the states considerable power. But ultimately, under the Supremacy Clause, the federal government rules when it's within the power of the federal government. Great, great question. Next caller, what do you have to say? Hi, Al. This is Mr. State. And my question is as follows. Is it possible for a Republican Senate to pass a law that the Supreme Court only has nine justices? Would it be able to pass such a law, and what would it take to overturn it? Good question. The Senate has no power to pass any laws. Uh, there's no such thing as a Senate law. The Senate has unique powers. It can confirm 
justices, it confirms uh, treaties, it confirms ambassadors, but it has no power to pass laws. All laws have to be passed jointly by the Senate and the House and either signed or vetoed by the president. If the president vetoes it, it can be overridden by a supermajority in both houses, but the Senate alone has no power to pass law. It can pass a resolution. It could say it is the sense of the Senate that the Supreme Court should only have nine justices, but that wouldn't have the force of law. If the Democrats were to take over the House, the Senate, and the presidency, they could conceivably pass a law expanding the number of justices to 11, to 13, to 15, to 25. Um, There are some Supreme Courts around the world that have 25 justices. They've been unwieldy. They don't sit as 25. They sit in panels. But uh, I think the American public would uh, be very skeptical about a partisan effort uh, by either party to try to expand the number of justices. Nine is not in the Constitution, but we've had nine for uh, a good many years, and I think we will probably stick with the nine. Hey, Mike, uh, what's your question? Hi, Mr. Dershowitz. I had a question about the confirmation process for the uh, Supreme Court justice. Um, it, it just seems strange to me that the House is not involved in um, in the uh, uh, review of the nomination process. Um, it, 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 you know, isn't the House supposed to be closer to the people, meaning um, they, they would uh, be reelected? The election cycle is every two years, um, and it's representative of the state in terms of the population size and so on and so forth. And so I, I, I'm just curious to know why was it left out of this uh, mm-hmm. evaluation process? Um, thank you for uh, for your uh, consideration and answer. I uh, appreciate the uh, education we're receiving from you. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks. Brilliant, brilliant question. It's precisely because the House is close to the people that the framers of the Constitution didn't give them the power to confirm justices. The framers of the Constitution were worried about the people. Our Constitution is not a democratic small d document. We are not a democracy, according to the framers. We are a republic. And indeed, the Senate originally wasn't even voted on by the people. It was picked by the state legislatures. The Senate was supposed to be eminent men of great distinction and honor that were not so political. They were not voted on by the people and they would be the ones to give advice and consent to a president from an elitist perspective. So it was precisely the fear of the people that gave the confirmation process over to the Senate. Of course, senators are now elected by popular vote, and um, they are in many ways indistinguishable from congressmen, except that they get elected every six years, not every two years, and it's regarded as the upper house, so... People who are in the House want to become senators, not vice versa. But the Senate is still regarded as the institution that's capable of advising and consenting to the president. It may be anachronistic. It goes back to the fear of the people, the fear of democracy. The Senate as a check on uh, popular voting. Remember, uh, at the time that the Constitution was ratified, the Bill of Rights were ratified, Um, the beginning of our republic, we were seeing a lot of dissent in Europe, uh, ultimately culminating in the French Revolution. And uh, the word Jacobin uh, was a fearful word 
Um, and when Jefferson ran for president, he was accused of being a Jacobin, somebody who favored revolution. He, indeed, he once said um, that uh, revolution every so often uh, would not be a terrible, terrible thing. But the Hamiltonians, uh, Adams, uh, Washington, they were fearful of the people. And so they created a Senate that would serve as a check on the popular will. And that's why the Senate has the role of confirmation. Hey, Al from South Carolina, what's your question? The burning question I have is how do you make a Hungarian omelet? <laughs> well, I promised I'd answer every question. So I'm going to answer this one. I hope you don't mind how I answer it. Uh, my grandmother, who came from Poland, a uh, Jewish refugee from Poland, uh, hated, hated uh, Hungarian Jews. Somehow she thought Hungarian Jews were too elite and she didn't like them. It's the only racism I think I ever experienced in my family was my grandmother's hatred for uh, Hungarian Jews. And so if you ask my grandmother, how do you make a Hungarian omelet? She would always say, first, steal two eggs. Okay, that's not my view. That's my grandma's view. But I said I'd answer every question. So I'm answering your humorous question with my humorous answer. Have a sense of humor. Don't accuse me of being anti-Hungarian. I personally love Hungarians. Linda, you're up next. Hello, Professor Dershowitz. My name is Linda Barron. I'm a graduate of Georgetown Law School. Uh, I just uh, listened to your podcast uh, on a, a delay, a bit of a delay, uh, regarding the uh, decision of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg to remain on the court through the uh, extended treatment uh, of her cancer condition after Barack Obama left office. Uh, I'm so glad uh, for your comments and for your thorough analysis of this issue. When I first heard the comments of uh, some uh, character from the Washington Post, early Saturday morning on the BBC, uh, declaring that Justice Ginsburg's, uh, her, uh, really, her legacy would be impugned by the fact that she did not resign and allow Barack Obama to name her successor. I was infuriated, and I agree with your analysis without going into extensive details. Uh, I'm so happy to hear your comments, and I'm glad you're doing your podcast. I'm sure the public will greatly benefit from hearing more from you on a daily basis. Thank you again for your opinion, particularly on this issue. Goodbye. Thanks. You're fortunate to have graduated from Georgetown, one of the great, great universities in, in the United States. Um, look, uh, people can have different views uh, on whether Justice Ginsburg should have or shouldn't have retired um, when she would have been replaced by a Democrat and confirmed by a Democratic uh, Senate. It was a very personal decision. I've mentioned once before the old Yiddish expression, man plans, God laughs. In this case, woman planned, God laughed. <clears throat> she thought she could have it both ways. She thought she might be able to live long enough to continue to have an impact on the Supreme Court and perhaps outlive uh, the Trump uh, presidency. God laughed and uh, took her away uh, on the eve of Rosh Hashanah uh, in Jewish tradition. The eve of Rosh Hashanah, when people die during that period of time, only the most righteous die. That's according to one tradition. 
but it was her decision to make. And uh, as friends of hers have said, she's never allowed men to tell her what to do, and she wasn't going to let Democratic operatives tell her what to do. She wanted to stay on the Supreme Court. <clears throat> she did. Um, now the vacancy may be filled with someone with polar views completely opposite to hers. Uh, reasonable people have the right to take whatever position they want on that. But in, in general, I think what we have to look at is institutional issues. Should justices be allowed to serve for 40 or 50 years on the Supreme Court? Should there be term limits? Should there be uh, a mandatory retirement age the way many, many courts, even in the United States, state courts, have? If so, what should the mandatory retirement age be? I'm 82 years old. You think I should retire from what I'm doing? Uh, no way. I love what I'm doing, and I'm going to continue to try to help stir up dispute and controversy and perhaps help educate a little bit on the Durst Show. So thank you for your great question. And I don't know about uh, Justice Ginsburg, but I'm hanging in there uh, as long as I can continue to provide useful commentary. This was a great seminar. You know, when I used to teach at Harvard, I would say a good class is one where I learned something from the students. Um, uh, you may have learned something from me in my discussion of hypotheticals. I learned a great deal from your questions. So keep them coming. I'll never bore you with my answers. Call or listen to line at 216-710-0050. I want to hear your questions, your comments, your criticisms, and your opinions. Remember, all calls are recorded, and we reserve the right to use your questions and comments on the air. Once again, the listener line is 216-710-0050. I look forward to hearing from you. The Durst Show is available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.